If you haven't uh, done so already, please join me at Matthew 7, 7 through 12. A good father and a golden rule. A good father and a golden rule. Well, we arrive at, at that part of the Sermon on the Mount near the end now where Jesus speaks two seemingly unrelated but very famous sayings. The first being that ask, seek, knock, teaching on prayer. That's famous. And, and then the perhaps most famous, uh, number two there, the, the golden rule, the golden rule. But they're not unrelated to what came just before. The golden rule, um, well, that is the bookend teaching, the back-end bookend teaching to what Jesus began the Sermon on the Mount with, namely, that Jesus' teaching of God the Father's kingdom and kingdom rules and expectations fulfills the law and the prophets, that is, the whole Word of God to that point, the whole Old Testament. And with this teaching, Jesus essentially closes the Sermon on the Mount. He references the law and prophets again in summary fashion to bookend close the, the, uh, the main body of, of this Sermon on the Mount. And the ask, seek, knock teaching, Jesus' ask and seek and knock prayer teaching. Well, that's directly related to what came before in the text we covered last Sunday, the thing about being sure to use proper judgment in all manner of things as a humble son or daughter and subject of the king and father, that we need wisdom and discernment and knowing first how to, how to help our brothers and sisters in their own sin, and then, and then second, how to know when and if to proclaim and defend the truths of God and the gospel of God. There was a thing with the pigs and the dogs and all that, pearls and swine. And how is that related to Jesus' ask, seek, knock, teaching on prayer here in our text for this morning, Matthew 7, 7 to 12, which we'll read in a second? Well, Jesus spoke of there not being, He spoke there of, of us needing to not be hypocritical. You remember the, the log and the speck? when confronting the sins of brothers and sisters. He spoke of things which require a great deal of wisdom and discernment and gentleness and care and courage. And where are we invited to find those sorts of things? How will we acquire or find humility, gentleness, wisdom, and courage? Well, some of those are fruits of the Spirit. Some of these things we are even called to seek from the Father directly. So how do we go about doing that? How do sons and daughters of God the Father, through Christ our brother, how do we seek and obtain these things from God? The answer is, of course, prayer. Jesus had already taught on prayer earlier in this Sermon on the Mount, but He returns to it here because of what He had just taught, knowing that we would need to be reminded where we find the things we need to obey the things just required and commanded. We need to be taught again and again that we are invited again and again to again and again ask 
from the Lord for the humility, strength, the right inclinations, and the power and will to do that which He asks of us. We need God's help to do right, to do His will. And He's not left us to ourselves to obey what He commands, to live out His kingdom rules and expectations and principles. He gives His Word, yes. He gives His Spirit, yes. And He gives us direct access to Himself and His throne of grace through Christ the Son, prayer. And Jesus will teach on it again. And so we have a good Father who answers those prayers and a golden rule to close it out, the Sermon on the Mount proper. Let's ask the Lord's blessing before we read that text now, and then we'll get going. Father, thank you for your word, and we do look to you to know the truth. And by your Spirit, we ask that you would help us to love that truth and submit to it, that we would repent and seek to grow, that we would be soft towards your word, that we would want to walk by the Spirit in repentance and trust, looking to you now for the, wor- the very words of, of life, and, and, and then not just that, as, as though it's just a mere doorway to salvation, but now the rule book, the means, the food for life lived in your kingdom. So help us to see, help us to embrace these things, and by your grace and spirit, we, we pray that we would be changed and convicted, and that we would grow and that we would obey in Jesus' name. Amen. Matthew 7, 7 to 12 then, those uh, famous uh, words both in 7, well really all of 7 through 11 and and verse 12 as, as it just stand alone. Those are our two points, by the way. <laughs> verse 7. Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds, and to the one who knocks it will be opened. Or which one of you if his son asks him for bread, we'll give him a stone. Or if he asks for a fish, we'll give him a serpent. If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask him? So whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them, for this is the law and the prophets, the holy and inerrant word of God. Two points, and today, as I said, it breaks down into those two sections, those two sayings, seemingly unconnected, but definitely not, to the things that came before it. The first, then, verses 7 to 11, that ask, seek, knock prayer section. So point one, the privilege of praying to a good father. The privilege of praying to a good father. Verses 7 to 11. 
You remember this phrase, sons and subjects, we've been using all along through, through the Sermon on the Mount. Sons and subjects. This is for sons and subjects, this teaching from the Sermon on the Mount. We've been using that language throughout sons or sons and daughters. I hope you hear that when I say sons or often when the Bible refers to sons. Sometimes translators will even supply that sons and daughters if it's warranted. But here we mean sons and daughters. Sons, because all who by God's grace place their, all who by God's grace place their trust in and dependence upon Jesus Christ alone for their salvation are adopted into a family, into the forever family of God through Christ the Son, our Savior, yes, and our brother, sons and daughters. Subjects, because it's also God's kingdom of which we speak and which draws near in the ministry of Jesus. The kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God is at hand and into which we are brought. We're brought into His kingdom. That is, we're brought into and underneath His rule and care and protection forever. We are subjects in His kingdom. We are the King's subjects. And here, in the first part of our text, in our first point, verses 7 to 11 again, this teaching of Jesus depends upon the son's part, the sons and daughters' part, a good father and his sons and daughters. The, the story, the illustration even depends upon us knowing that, that uh, God is father to his own, all those whom he adopts into his, his family which is an important reminder as we draw closer to the text now. This, this God is Father language is reserved only for God's relationship with those who come to Him through Jesus, His Son. This is about and for Christians. The blessings promised as a result of these prayers are not the blessings of common grace, but they are the blessings of the kingdom. They are not blessings for everyone. They are blessings for the sons and subjects. And though we must ask for them, it is not because God must be informed, but because this is the Father's way of training and growing and serving His family. Prayer and His promises with regard to prayer, this all is a matter of His covenantal familial if that works better for you, familial love for His people. He is their heavenly Father who is graciously and generously disposed towards them, gracious towards them, generous with them, and willingly, willingly. That's so important. You're not, you're not resting things from, pulling things that He would like not to give. Willingly bestows the good gifts of His kingdom in answer to their prayers, and they need not be afraid to ask Him for whatever they need at any time. Look again, verse 7. It reads this way. So now we understand, by the way, to you, God's children, His chosen ones, the sons and subjects, you ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened. To you. He loves, he provides, he knows his will will be done. Yet, 
we are here called to ask. He ordains that we ask. It's a means over which He is also absolutely, meticulously sovereign. His design for us is that we are to ask in faith as we grow to know His Word and will, to ask for what we need from Him, knowing that we are dependent upon Him for life and breath and bread and everything. God cares for us even if we don't ask, as an earthly father cares for distant, unresponsive children who don't think or know to ask or are self-assured for a season. Don't need him. Don't need dad. Don't need mom. Does dad still love? Yeah, and mom too in, in that scenario. But God wants us to come close. He wants to have a familial and close relationship with him. And for that to happen, we must communicate with God in prayer. He would be glorified in being the giver. That's what he wants. He would be glorified in being the giver, and He would have us grow in love toward Him as we learn to depend on Him as the giver, and we the recipients. In fact, He is glorified as His children look to Him as the great giver. God gives, but He gives even more when we ask. What a strange thing to say. But surely that's true from our perspective. What else could James mean when he writes, you do not have because you do not ask? So if you ask, and we'll talk about the Bible's teachings on how to ask and how to know effective prayer and rebellious prayer and so forth. So if you ask, you'll have. If you don't, you won't. How else can we understand that? that? But from our perspective, He gives, but He gives even more when we ask. And here in Matthew 7, 7, Jesus gives the positive side of that sentence when, of James's principle when He says, Ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you, O sons and daughters. And notice also in verse 7 that we are to keep on praying. Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. I grant that it's not necessarily apparent right on the surface of the English there, but the sense of it here is that we're invited to keep on asking, to keep on seeking, to, to keep on knocking. That's the sense of it. And not that Jesus is contradicting himself here, that somehow now he endorses vain repetitions and, and the stacking up, the piling up of empty words. No, he, he spoke against that just a chapter earlier, did he not? No, we, we don't get more from God by repeating our requests mindlessly over and over, like twisting his arm and bugging him until he, he relents, though he didn't want to. 
None of that. But this does mean that we are never to grow weary of asking, seeking, and knocking, since we know that God is always hearing and always answering and desires to give us good things in His timing. And you don't understand His timing, so we keep asking Him, knowing that He means to teach us good things in it, such as repentance and patience, not to mention growing dependence again. If we would but focus upon Him and look to Him in all things and at all times for everything we need. And as it turns out, as we do this strangely, our desires begin to align with His desires, our will with His, and we find that our prayers come into, over time, greater and greater alignment with His Word and will. So, therefore, persist in prayer. Keep on asking. Keep on seeking. Keep on knocking, sons and daughters, sons and subjects. And don't become discouraged. This is God's will for you in Christ. I haven't addressed one aspect of verses 7 and 8 that I'm sure has occurred to you and has come to me as a question here and there. I'm sure for you as well. And that's the seeming certainty of the reception of, of what is asked for. Isn't, isn't that a question on your mind? Hasn't, hasn't that been a question for you? The seeming certainty of the receiving of what is asked for. Look again. To you, God's children, His chosen ones, the sons and subjects, ask and it will be given to you. See, there, there it is. Seek and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who, that is all of sons and subjects who asks, receives. All who ask, receive. And the one who seeks, finds. And to the one who knocks, it will be opened. Do you see? I, I imagine I don't have to point that out. I did. Uh, maybe it helped you. Um, but do you see it there? The seeming certainty of the receiving of what is asked. So how come I don't... Get what's asked sometime. How are we to read this aspect of it? Is it that whatever we ask, no matter what, we get? Well, you know, that's not it. So that's not what he means. Is God a vending machine in the sky, even for His own children? Is that how the best of fathers would like to be treated by His children, who are supposed to be like father, like son, and dwelt with His Spirit? That they would treat Him like a vending machine in the sky? Is that like that Cadillac now with the gold package? <laughs> That's my old thing. They don't, I don't even know if they do that anymore, Cadillac. God, I want a comfort-free life, no troubles. <sighs> How are we to read this? Well, I, I, I've been helped by those through the centuries who have compiled, providing for us some texts we need to know that help us understand what Jesus means and doesn't mean here. So a few scriptural steps 
to make sure that we understand what Jesus means and doesn't mean. One, two, three, four, five. <laughs> My fourth and fifth don't say four and five. There's five of them. Well, first, and this is pretty elementary, we've already established that this promise is for believers only. So we start with that. It's for believers only. So this isn't some willy-nilly thing that, that, that people who hate God can somehow say the magic words. and you know, It's nothing like that. Those who are not God's children cannot come to Him as their Father in the first place, let alone have His ear or have His heart or ask anything of Him. Second, we know also from God's Word, 1 John 3, 22, that the one who claims this promise must be living in obedience to the Father. You want to hear that? Whatever we ask, we receive from Him because we keep His commandments and do what He pleases. So you want things from Him, professing believer, but you don't read the Bible, you don't know His character, His will, and you live, as it were, as, well, like hell, to be frank. And He should give you the car for the weekend. Is old dad going to do that? Even earthly dads aren't going to do that. So we know from God's Word that the one who claims this promise must be living in obedience to the Father. No reason to caveat that or to explain it away. Third, our motive in asking must be right. This is from James, James 4.3. You ask and do not receive... So there's an acknowledgement from within God's Word in the New Testament from James. And sometimes we don't receive the things we ask for, us children of God, the sons and daughters, the sons and subjects of Christians. You ask and do not receive, James goes on, because... So here's your answer for some of the times you don't get it. Because you ask wrongly. That is, with wrong motives. What does that mean? Well, he said, to spend it on your sinful passions. There is a famous preacher who illustrates by painting a picture of a, a woman who rolls over to her husband and asks for $50 and then rolls over to the man she's back over, to the man she's really with. Spend it with him. And that gets at the heart of it, doesn't it? We ask things from God to be idolatrous against God, to commit spiritual adultery against God. Would you give me stuff so that I can disobey you? 
Would you give me stuff so I can keep neglecting you? Would you give me stuff so that I would never learn to depend on you more? Well, you have not then because you ask wrongly with wrong motives. That's the third one. Our motive in asking must be right. Fourth, we must be submissive to His will. We might even say, as Jesus would intimate, thinking of John 5, I think. I didn't look, I didn't look that one up. Well, how Jesus would talk about how His will was His Father's will, and His Father's will was His will, and He only said and did what the Father said and did. Our wills need to be increasingly in alignment with His will. If we're trying to serve both God and money, for example, as he spoke against in Matthew 6, we cannot claim this promise that God will answer our prayers and give us what we ask for. We don't know Him well. We don't know His will. We're asking for our will, from our will. Or as James put it, James 1 7 to 8, for that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. And John makes clear, 1 John five fourteen. this is the confidence that we have toward him. So you want to have confidence in this, in this prayer, ask, seek, knock. This is the confidence that we have toward Him that if we ask anything according to His will, to God's will, He hears us. Does Jesus know all of this when He says, ask and it will be given? Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. Does he know all of Yes, he, he spoke all of these. He inspired all of these things. These men to write these things. This is the word of Christ. Does he know these things as he said those asks seek knock? Yes, he does. To have confidence in answered prayer on any other basis than these four, and I'll add one more, is to have a false and presumptuous confidence that God actually makes no promise to honor. He doesn't promise to honor prayers um, from people, from professing believers who, who are complete disobedience to Him, whose motives are all wrong, who would use it to commit idolatry and adultery, who don't know His will and don't want to do His will. It's not, he's not going to answer those prayers positively. And a fifth thing, I, I should add one more thing. In this this comes from thinking of Paul's concern that the brothers be bearing their own load. You know that? I think that's Galatians. There's two or three here. I, didn't, I don't know why I didn't put that text here. But, um, but it's Galatians 6, the thing about brothers bearing their own load. Remember, work with your hands. Don't be a drag on the church. Bear your, so it comes from thinking of Paul's concern that the brothers be bearing their own load, working with their hands. And John's concern to quote Christ's insistence that if we love him, we'll, we'll, uh, the idea that I was thinking of was do, we'll do his commands. We'll, that is, obey and keep on obeying, moving, efforting, repenting. We won't be sitting on our hands. So here, 
If you pray and ask, and ask and ask and ask and seek and seek and seek and knock and knock and knock, you're not to be passive, particularly as you're praying, particularly about that which you're praying for. Whatever of His will we know to do, we should be doing. So, if we're asking the Lord to help us find a job, it's very practical. We should be looking for a job ourselves while we await His guidance and discernment and provision. If we're out of food, we should be trying to earn money to buy it if we can. Do your legs work and your hands? If we want help in confronting a brother about a sin, we should be trying to find out all we can about him and his situation and all we can about what God's Word says on the subject involved. And we should be repenting ourselves, that whole speck and log thing, remember? It's not faith but presumption to ask the Lord to provide or to provide more of a thing when we are not faithfully using what He's already given us or are not obeying what He's already commanded, or are not availing ourselves of all that He has already provided, or of the means through which He says He often gives those things for which we are presently asking. Now, verses 9 to 11, we keep adding. we got to get to the second. We need to get to the golden rule, don't we? Verses 9 to 11, still in the ask, seek, knock, prayer section, our approach to God. There's some emphasis on that here. Jesus gives a brief but telling illustration to, to reinforce this point, back to the familial stuff, back to the good father stuff. As sons and daughters of God the Father, we're to approach God with trust in His goodness. With trust in His goodness. This scenario he, he um, paints in verses 9 and 10 is just silly. I think it's meant to be silly, you know, ridiculous. No, I mean, any, anyone who is trying to be a good father, you would just go, oh, that, uh, you know, that's silly. But he's making a point. Verse 9 and 10 read, verses 9 and 10 read, again, look there. Or which one of you? Which one of you dads? If his son asks him for bread, we'll give him a stone. Or if he asks for a fish, we'll give him a, a serpent. And, and the conclusion, he knows how silly this is, and the conclusion can come so fast and be so inevitable and clear. Oh, you wouldn't do that. You wouldn't do that. You know that. We all know. If you then, who are evil, by the way, a statement about our fallenness, if you then who are evil, a statement about our fallenness and still being in the flesh and subjected to indwelling sin in spite of the Spirit's presence and our having been born again, if you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, you won't give a stone, you won't give a snake. How much more will your Father, so He is talking about 
the whole time. But here again, clear, he's talking about Christians. How much more will your Father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask Him? So, quite apart from your feelings, God towards His children is not playing the cup game, hiding the answer. He's not playing hide-and-seek or seeing how much He can get you to squirm and beg, hiding His will, hiding good things. It's not a game. He's not entertained by things like that. And by the way, I think that would just be wicked, wouldn't it? So if you think He's like that, what kind of God are you praying to? To whom you must match the right words and get them in the right order and come at the right time. It's that cup. Ah, I gotcha. He's gotcha. Are you praying to a God like that? You think that's what God is like? You're, You're very mistaken. And you might not know God as Father. It's not a game. It's a family. And He is the best of fathers. And that's not even to say it enough, is it to say enough? He's perfect, in fact. Are we convinced of that? I mean, I could say, first of all, do, does your Bible awareness and intake lend itself to knowing that, to knowing Him? But then do our prayers to Him reflect that we understand this about Him? Do you know, Christian, of God's perfect goodness promised toward you and His love for you as your perfect and perfectly loving Father? Do you know that about Him? How much more will your Father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask Him? Have we forgotten or have we never learned that we are dealing with the God who once said to His people, Isaiah 49, Can a woman forget her nursing child, that she should have no compassion on the sons of her womb? Even these may forget, yet I will not forget you. So, we are here being reminded by Jesus, called by Jesus, to remember often the holy and abundant goodness of God toward His children and therefore of the resources available to us from our Heavenly Father. This for all who by God's grace believe in Jesus, His Son. This is James Montgomery Boyce, a a quote, a couple paragraphs uh, to close this first point, then on to the golden rule. The preacher James Montgomery Boyce um, passed in the year 2000, I think. Quote, What do we lack in our own lives and in the church generally? Is it wisdom to deal with this sophisticated and godless world, to distinguish good from evil, right from wrong, to present the claims of Christ intelligibly and with success? If it is, then we should ask wisdom of God. James says, if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God who gives generously generously to all without reproach and it will be given him. 
James 1.5? Do we lack suitable candidates for church office, for missions? Do we lack Sunday school teachers or church workers? If so, it is because we are not asking. Jesus said, The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into the harvest. Matthew 9. Moreover, isn't it significant, Boyce goes on, that these great remarks about prayer occur toward the end of the Sermon on the Mount after the long list of things that should characterize our lives as Christians. We read of purity of heart, and we lack it. We read of meekness, and we lack that. We lack integrity, love, trust in God, humility, discrimination, discernment, and all the other things Christ mentions. Isn't it true that Jesus mentions prayer again precisely at this point just so that we may be encouraged to ask God for these things? Prayer has not changed. God has not changed. His ear is as quick to hear and His arm as strong to save as ever. Then let us ask. End quote. And end point one. Point two, just verse 12, the golden rule of the king's kingdom. The golden rule of the king's kingdom. Just verse 12 now to finish. Um, well, right, and now the subjects part of the sons and subjects is emphasized. Remember the first point in the prayer thing, more familial, father, good father, sons and daughters. Now the subjects part, the golden rule of the king's kingdom. The subjects part is emphasized, the king and his kingdom and what he commands and expects of his kingdom subjects. Therefore, so, in the light of all I have taught about the true direction, we can kind of hear Jesus saying, in, in light of all I have taught about the true direction in which the Old Testament law points, obey the golden rule, for it sums up the law and the prophets. I'll read through verse 12 again in a second. But it's called the golden rule. You notice it doesn't say that in there. It doesn't ever say the golden rule. But it's a handy, verse 12, the golden rule, a handy summary of the sum total of the righteousness to be lived out, displayed in the kingdom by the subjects of the king, which can be applied. It's so general. It can be applied in thousands of situations if it, if it, if it inhabits and comes from the, the heart of that subject, the heart of that Christian. What should I do here? Well, what does Jesus say? In verse 12, we talk about principles that can be applied where, where the Bible doesn't speak specifically to something. Well, it doesn't talk about, the Bible doesn't say anything about the internet, people will say. Oh, you got us. You got me. And we talk about principles. Well, here's one that applies to all of the situations. All of them, probably, that involve other humans, for sure. The golden rule, in principle, teaches that what people ordinarily want others to do for them, and here we're talking to Christians again, so that's important. What people ordinarily want others to do for them should be what they practice toward those others. 
a principle we are to understand which cannot be consistently practiced by a natural person and certainly not from the heart of a natural person, not consistently, not, not to the depth of the Christian's ability to do it. Only a righteous, a righteous person, the person born again, is able to practice this rule and thereby demonstrate the change that has come about in his or her life. Such a person is saved because of the righteousness of Christ and is then enabled to obey this command because of the Spirit of Christ in them, repenting as they go. Such a person's righteous acts do not save them, but because they have been delivered, they are able to demonstrate true righteousness toward others by God's grace. They are able to live out this golden rule, which reads again, Matthew seven twelve. This should sound like everything I just said. So whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them. For this is the law and the prophets. This is the whole thing. All of the ethical teachings and commands right there. Which is crazy if you think about it. <laughs> we make it so hard. I mean, it's impossible, as I just said. Possible for believers. But we make it so hard then. When Jesus can sum it with just a period. In a, it's just a sentence. Well, I, I mentioned earlier, and then uh, from weeks ago too, you might remember, or, or maybe you'd be reminded even now if you look at your study notes in your study Bible, but, but this is the back-end bookend uh, paired with Matthew 5, 17. So those are the bookends, that bracket, the main body of the Sermon on the Mount, and, and they both reference the law and the prophets, that Jesus comes to fulfill the law and the prophets and that now he gives the final ethical statement that his people are empowered to keep the law and the prophets. The Old Testament, as we saw in Matthew 5, points forward to Jesus and the kingdom of God he announces and finds its real continuity in them, but the righteousness demanded by the kingdom might be sinfully parroted hypocritically by religious types who perform outward acts of righteousness. And so Jesus warns about them in Matthew 6. It might not be what you think you see. It must be from the heart, insisting on sincere adherence to the convictions and commands of the kingdom. And then at the beginning of Matthew 7, Jesus deals with these other possible misconceptions. He, remember, deals with being sinfully judgmental, verses 1 through 5, the, the speck and the log. But he balances that against the danger of being undiscerning altogether with holy things in verse 6. And the whole discourse is tempered by his warning against lacking a trusting persistence in prayer for what they need to obey, both entrance into the kingdom too and progress in the kingdom require God's provision of grace, and then he caps it off with this. 
the golden rule. Whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them. This is for, so your obedience to that, your attention to that, your diligence on this, the basis for doing it. For this is the law and the prophets. Now it's the negative, as many people will say at this point, I'll say it too, it, it's the negative form of this rule that's more known throughout the world and its, and its religions. By that we mean something like um, we could grab from um, the Jews and a rabbi named Hillel who said, what is, what is hateful to you do not do to your fellow creatures. Do not do, right? Do not do. That is the whole law, he said. All else is explanation. Many of them sound like that. Do not do anything to anyone that you would not want him to do to you. That's how they usually go. The rabbi there says that that sums up the whole law. Well, not exactly, says Jesus. Jesus gives the positive form of this rule, and the difference between the the two is, is obviously profound. For example, the negative form would teach behavior like this. Well, if, if you don't want to be robbed, don't rob others. If you don't being, uh, enjoy being insulted, don't insult others. If you don't care to be clubbed over the head, don't club others over the head. But the positive form teaches behavior like this which is markedly different. If you enjoy being loved, love others. If you like to receive things, give to others. If you like being appreciated, appreciate others. You see, the positive form is therefore far more searching and demanding than its negative counterpart. Here there is no permission to withdraw into a world, sort of this, I don't know, pseudo-libertarian world where if you don't want an abortion, don't get an abortion. Isn't that the logic of the age? Withdrawing into a, a world where we offend no one and, and Accomplish no good either, by the way. Whatever is fine, whatever morality is fine, as long as no one gets hurt. Isn't that the outworking of the negative of the golden rule? But that won't work. That's not far enough in God's kingdom. Rather, what would you like in righteousness? Thinking as a Christian, what would you like? really like, done for you and to you, then do that to others. Not what you think they deserve, not what they actually deserve, but the best of what you can think about for yourself, do to them. Now, that's a game changer, and that's the law and the prophets, all of it. Why are we to act in this way? He doesn't say this, 
that we're to do this to others, what we would like them to do to us, in order that they will do it to us. I like people to give me more stuff. <laughs> so let's reverse engineer that. No, that's, you're not supposed to be thinking like that. You're not supposed to be thinking like that. The reason we are to do to others what we would like others to do to us, Jesus says, is that such behavior sums up the law and the prophets. In other words, such behavior conforms to the requirements of the king, the kingdom of God, the kingdom which is the fulfillment of the law and the prophets. It constitutes a quick test of the perfection demanded throughout the Sermon on the Mount, the love described and the, uh, of the truth portrayed throughout it, and so forth in the lives of God's children, God's people. This is to be reflected, reflecting the perfection of their Father in heaven. Remember, like Father, like Son, like Father, like Son. So why are we to act this way? Because we want to please our good Father. We want to give proof that we are His. We want to obey Him. Don't you love me? You, do you love me? Then do what I said. The golden rule then lays great stress on the subject and the king, but it's still connected to the God and Father stuff, isn't it? The verses before have set that up already. And then remember how he began the sermon, the Beatitudes, sons and subjects, the, the sons of the sons of the of the Father. Um, and, and elsewhere, Jesus teaches that the greatest commandment is, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind, and that the second greatest is, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. What we know for so many reasons, is that the second will never be obeyed without that first, that familial kingdom connection to the Father and King. We will never love our neighbors in the way we would like to be loved until we love God with heart and soul and mind. We will not be able to obey the ethical demands of the kingdom of God from the heart unless we are first born of God, born from above, and brought into the family of God through Christ His Son. And as we ask and seek and knock, God gives grace and strength to become doers of the Word, repenting as we go. So the golden rule, obeyed from the heart, heart born again, empowered and preserved by God. The law and the prophets fulfilled perfectly in Jesus Christ, who then brings a people to God through His blood, indwells them with His Spirit, and enables them to obey the law and the prophets, summed up in the golden rule, from the heart, repenting as they go, which glorifies God and Christ as well, upon the promise that He will bring us all home. God didn't save us so we would remain in rebellion against Him. He didn't save us so that we would remain distant from Him. He didn't save us so that we would remain in our sin. He saved us to make us like Jesus, and that means to live out this standard, praying to God for help, depending on His Spirit. The great Martin Lloyd-Jones quote, 
Our Lord did not preach the Sermon on the Mount in order that you and I might comment on, on it, but in order that we might carry it out, end quote. So when God enters your life at the moment of your conversion, a new life is created by which the new you, a new creation, fed and nourished by the Spirit of God, is made capable of attaining increasingly to all that God commands. That's why there are so many commands for the Christian in the Bible. When we come to God's commands as Christians with the life of God Himself within, we find it attainable. The golden rule is attainable as we ask and seek and knock for His help. And we find that the Spirit of God constantly urges us on not to get saved. We couldn't be saved by our obedience, as you know, but because we are already saved, already His children, and our Father bids us obey His kingdom rules and His heart and to ask Him for His help. And even as we grow tired, even as we fall into sin and are called again to repent and to ask and to seek and knock again and again, God is faithful to His children. That is, God will continue to do this with us. He promises. Philippians 1.6, I'm sure you know it. Paul writes, I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. And so Paul would write to the Philippian Christians further just a, just a few paragraphs later, and I, and I close with it. Such a great summary of, of the need to, to obey and the basis for thinking we will and can. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you both to will and to work for His good pleasure. A good father golden rule, sons and subjects. Amen. Father, thank You for Your Word. Thank You for inspiring it, superintending it, getting it to English speakers in 2023, which is a marvel across cultures and seas and centuries and languages, borders, peoples, even to us how we take it for granted. And help us to apply what we've heard, to dig deeper, to know, to grow, to love what we read, to know that you provide everything needed to obey. 
for your children. You are a good Father, and it is by your Spirit that we can cry, Abba, Father. So I pray that you would give that assurance to everyone here, perhaps for the first time, that they would come to know you through Christ, through trusting in Him alone, and for believers who are tired and uh, worn. Would you refresh them with your promise of provision and your goodness that you say, come and ask and seek and knock. I will give. I will give what you need. Refresh your children. Be the lifter of their heads with your word and through your word. We thank you. You have given. and You have opened the door. And we thank you. In Jesus' name, amen.